I would actually never say if you talk about it, it'll go away. I think that's actually like the myth of mindfulness too, is like, if I just like stay quiet enough, all my thoughts will go away. No, actually they're going to get louder. Same with therapy. Like the, whatever the thing is, it's actually not going to go away. You're actually going to notice it more. And that's good because it means you're going to be dealing with it. That's Joy Pelkey talking about the mental health stigma. Joy is the lead on student engagement and academic partnerships for Wolverine Wellness at the University of Michigan. She's also a wellness coach within the Wolverine Wellness Network. In addition, she's currently my instructor for a class about wellness in college for leaders on campus, which we will reference a few times in the episode. Joy has a wealth of knowledge about all things related to student well-being and is well-practiced at breaking down these complex topics into easy-to-understand, actionable ideas. When I first asked Joy to be on this podcast, I asked if she could condense our 14-week course into a 30-minute podcast episode. She laughed, but I was serious. The topics she's able to discuss and the passion she brings to these conversations were something I wanted to spread to every student. Ultimately, I chose to focus today's conversation on two subjects I'm quite passionate about since I've found them to be pivotal in my own ability to succeed as a student, mindfulness and help-seeking. Before you roll your eyes at more wellness bullshit, know that what we are about to talk about is so much more than the stereotypical meditation that monks practice. My name is Sarah Remberg. I'm a senior in the LSA Honors Program at the University of Michigan, and this is How to Student, a show where we explore all the things that make college so stressful and help students, just like you, be successful. I wanted to start by asking Joy what the most common issues are that she deals with as a wellness coach at Michigan. Prior to this year, we would have sort of centered those top issues as being mostly around alcohol and other drug use, sexual health, body image, eating disorders, mental health, and all of those things are still wildly big topics. However, this year, you know, what's sort of taken the forefront is racism and really all of the isms as how they impact a college campus and how they impact not just individual students' well-being, but the collective well-being of the university. And then obviously just COVID has sort of laid like a film over all of those things and made all of them more complicated. And so we've not been bored this year. I think it's just as important to be looking at the systemic reasons for students' mental health problems in addition to tackling sort of the one-on-one individual barriers that students have, which are which are various. And it shouldn't be left out to say that one of the biggest barriers for well-being and mental health are all the things that are coming up so much more like saliently in the sort of discourse in America right now, which is racism, marginalization, you know, all of those things which have a, a very profound impact on student mental health. And I think that's also being talked about a lot more, which is which is hopeful, I think. The mental health problem on college campuses is undeniable. According to the National Healthy Mind Study, pre-pandemic, Over one-third of students enrolled at universities screened for depression, over 30% of students screened for an anxiety disorder, and a frighteningly high 14% of students had some suicidal ideation in the past year. As Joy's indicated, the pandemic has only made things worse. 
These are the current facts. So the question becomes, what can you as a student do to improve your mental health? Joy and I are big fans of mindfulness. So I asked her to talk about what it is and how she goes about introducing it to students. I'm always curious, actually, like what people's initial reaction is. But I think it can sometimes be seen as sort of a, I don't know, like new agey, simple solution that's like on the cover of magazines, but nobody really knows what we're talking about it. And I think actually, to, to be frank, I think some people have an aversion to it, which I understand. It's like, it's not this easy, simple solution. And I think people get annoyed when you say like, oh, you know, just meditate or breathe, you know, and it's like, and, and yes, there's tons of evidence behind it, but I totally understand why people have that reaction. But how I like to think about meditation or how I like to present it sort of like, like the, a simple level is to say, to me, there is sort of two parts to what I would call mindfulness. And one is the practice of mindful meditation, which is its own thing. And if people want to Google all of the wild benefits of them, of it, it's there. Like, go for it. If you're listening to this podcast and you want to start Googling it, like if it's something that you are interested in, I would absolutely encourage you to try it. What I think is actually sometimes more important for students to grasp is that mindfulness is also a concept and a practice in so many other places in people's lives. And so my favorite way to define it is, in, I guess, in two ways. One is sort of at the simplistic level. You know, if you even just ask people like, oh, what is mindfulness? What is it? Or what are the tenets? People will typically say all of the things that are part of it, which is like, you know, being in the moment, being present, like noticing your thoughts and emotions, and then sort of looking at those with non-judgment, compassion, right? And that all yeah, sounds simple, but it's really hard to do. And then I think I always say also that my favorite quote about mindfulness is that mindfulness is the radical act of instead of looking away from, we actually turn towards our difficult emotions and hold them with compassion, which I think is actually like the key to mindfulness. As I mentioned earlier, I'm a big fan of mindfulness. I've been practicing it for a bit over five years now. Sometimes it's an intentional meditation, and other times it's as simple as taking notice of the way the light comes through the trees on my morning walk or the way I hold tension in my shoulders when I'm working. It sounds cliche, but it's true, and in a way, I think it's saved my life. It served as a way for me to create the space and control necessary to navigate my environment after my brain injury and has been invaluable when needing to mitigate the stress of college. My favorite mindfulness quote captures this perfectly. It's a Viktor Frankl quote that reads, between stimulus and response, there is space, and that space is our power to choose our response, and our response lies our growth and our freedom. Believe it or not, I first discovered that in an email signature block, but I think it works. I think if we talked about mindfulness to like humans from 200 years ago, they would be like, I don't know this for a fact, but like, I would think they'd be like, yeah, that's what we do because they <laughs> didn't have as many distractions. Seriously. Like I think like for your generation and I really am concerned about for like my kids generation, I think the level of distraction is so high and not all bad, but like just the amount of input we get every day from screens, from phones, from, you know, it's just, it's overwhelming. And now when you think about sort of like the speed at which, you know, like YouTube and TikTok and like, if you think about how much input that is, 
it actually is extremely hard to be in the present, I think, particularly for generations now, right? And so often when I would even do a meditation with anyone, not, I was going to say with students, but I would say with anyone sort of in the present context, you sort of expect like, okay, I'm going to do a two minute meditation. And like, I think people think when I say, how did that go? They want, they think I'm expecting answers like, oh, that was so nice. That was so relaxing. Da, da, da. And like some people find that, but I, but often people will say that was the most uncomfortable two minutes of my life. You know, and I think what they're saying is that we have so much practice by default in our days of being so overwhelmed with thought and sensory input and information that to quiet the mind is, is actually this like radical practice. And, and it's not easy. It sounds easy. So I think what you're saying is that like when you actually intentionally do that, which you had to teach yourself to do, it does like allow for a deep breath and it's actually physiological too. Like actually the act of taking a deep breath and like focusing on the moment actually reminds yourself that you're okay. Whereas like, you know, we can, our brains go into stress response when we're in, an, in anxious thoughts or stress. And we have to find those ways to sort of like calm ourselves. So I would say, you know, some of the ways that I use it and I hope students use it is sort of going like maybe one step beyond what you're saying, which is coming into the present moment, but also actually observing our thoughts and emotions from sort of like a, I don't want to say a removed place, but like, that's what I mean by non-judgment is like, just noticing what's going on. What thoughts am I having? What emotions am I having? And not like immediately going into like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm thinking this, or I can't believe I'm doing that, or I can't believe I'm feeling this, which is like what, what's more easy to do, but to just notice. It allows us to make better choices and make better self-care choices too for ourselves because it sort of gives us the permission to have the complicated feelings and thoughts, but like also acknowledges that like nothing's permanent and that we do have skills to like get through them too. How do you think mindfulness plays into the way we connect? I think mindfulness is really connected to vulnerability. And I'm, and I'm positive it's connected to emotional intelligence and relational intelligence. And, and here's why. A lot of, so a lot of our communication also now is over like texting and social media, right? And so it, it is true that the younger generations don't have as much experience with in-person connection. And connection isn't easy, right? And sometimes barriers to connection are overthinking about like rejection or what if they don't like me or what if this doesn't go well, right? And I've heard so many students say that, like I, that they feel they don't really have really close friends or really close connections. And I think this is where, you know, you can listen to Brene Brown talk about this, which is that close connections do require vulnerability. They just do. And sometimes vulnerability is like, I'm going to say forced when you're around people a lot. Like if you think about who you live with or people you've known for 12 years, right? Like sometimes you're just like in awkward situations together because that's just how it is, right? But like once you start sort of going off into the world and trying to meet new people, you, someone has to make sort of like the first move. Now I sound like we're like dating, but like, it's true. Someone has to be willing to put themselves out there 
And usually vulnerability is met with vulnerability. I really think that part of mindfulness is, again, noticing what are the barriers I'm having right now to like wanting to reach out. And they might be silly. They might be totally well-founded, but just to notice like, huh, I'm feeling like I'm worried what they're going to say or like, what if they don't text me back or those sort of things. But those are real barriers for people. And they can look back and think, oh my gosh, like, I wish I had done this. And this is, you know, part of why in the class that I teach, which you know, is that some of the assignments are actually to do just these things, is to actually require someone (laughs) to try and sort of get over these barriers that they have a hunch would probably be good to do, but they hesitate. And it's not surprising that in almost all cases, not all, but in almost all cases, students will report saying, oh my gosh, I'm so glad I did that. It wasn't easy. It doesn't mean it's easy, but I'm so glad I took the risk and it went so much better than I thought. The assignment Joy is referring to how to test her ability to connect effectively by conducting a challenging conversation and writing a reflection afterwards. Some students chose to discuss issues pertaining to our recent election and social justice. Others had conversations with friends that they had been putting off. When I had my challenging conversation, I found myself relying on my breath as a way to ground myself and ensure I didn't get too far ahead of where I was in the conversation or act on impulse, which I'm sometimes guilty of. While I was nervous to have my conversation, it did go better than expected. And I think that was because of my ability to remain grounded while being vulnerable. What I would want to know is, did you feel like going into those sort of harder or more uncomfortable conversations were more helpful because of some of the other mindfulness grounding we did in the class, not just about like the breath and about, you know, being in the present moment, but also like the emotional intelligence piece about how do I sort of stay centered in my own emotions, notice them, sort of regulate them as much as I can. And then in terms of relational intelligence, also have those things like empathy, wanting to understand, listening to someone else. To me, those are all just sort of like one-ups or not one-ups, but like mindfulness is the foundation for them. You can't do those things without noticing. So I guess that's my question is like, did you feel like in doing that assignment, those other pieces helped too? I mean, I know you had these skills already. Yeah, well, uh, (laughs) they're always good to be practiced. But yeah, for sure. I think that there was an awareness and preparing to have the conversation and understanding sort of where my anxiety lay, being able to sort of tease out what was the cause of the way I was feeling. And then also when having the conversation being to sort to sort of sift through the emotions as they came out, I think one of the ways that mindfulness has played a role into this is unrelated to the assignment, but you know, because of the pandemic, I'm living at home and I'm I'm living with my parents and just sort of having been an independent college student and then moving back home, there's just a really interesting dynamic where yes, I'm an adult, but I'm also currently, you know, living in a parent-child dynamic. And so being a mindful or trying to be more mindful of my interactions and being able to sort of step sideways from where I might have actually leapt pretty quickly to anger, being able to being able to recognize sort of the stress of the time or what might my or how my actions might have impacted someone else. And sort of, I think a general sort of outcome of having a more mindful existence is this awareness and having, I think, I think it's improved my ability to have self-control, which is needed, particularly when you're living with your parents. But I think those are, are really interesting points to bring up. But uh, I think also, just really quickly, I would also say that I think yeah. that 
the kind of mindfulness we're talking about. Also, like going back to like why mindfulness is hard is that sometimes it actually is easier to go into avoidance and distraction for most things. Like, in that, and it's very easy to distract ourselves in the world we live in. I mean, it's less easy actually right now in the pandemic, but in general, right, there's lots of distractions and it's easier to, to fall back on that versus what mindfulness asks you to do is get quiet enough and notice enough to notice like that the discomfort is actually that is actually in the inaction or in the avoidance and that like doing something actually, even though it's going to be hard, whether it's a conversation, whether it's doing something different, changing something is actually what's needed. I'd be interesting to know if you have a, a difference in opinion, but I would say sort of to relate some of you know what we're talking about in this broader contextualization of mindness to what one might consider if you're thinking of like the Headspace app, for instance, which is sort of a seated guided meditation or body scan is that I view sort of your ability to be mindful almost as like a muscle. And so you have to be able to train that muscle and continue to flex it. And that can look in a variety of different ways. So it's almost like guided, initiated practice compared to sort of the real life application of sort of your mindfulness ability. It would, would you agree with that statement or do you have a better way of sort of explaining the parallels? Oh, no, 100%. I mean, I think like, I, I mean, I would love to talk to someone who's actually a neuroscientist, but like my understanding of it, I mean, if you think of it sort of like visually as if your brain has neural pathways that are habitual, whatever they are, you could sort of picture like water flowing into like certain little valleys or whatever. And that by practicing what we're talking about, you actually like shift where the pathways go. Because our defaults are often not to be mindful and not because we're like bad or anything, just because I think, again, like going back to like how we're just sort of like trained in current society, it's not, that's not the main way that people are learned to sort of like use their brains and their minds. And so, yeah, I think it absolutely, 100%, it takes actually a lot of practice for it to like stick. And I think that's why people get frustrated, especially with like meditating. I think people think, oh, I do this like three or four times and I got it. Like, no, it's like anything else. You have to practice it and you have to find what works for you too. Like there's different practices around mindfulness that people might latch onto more than others and good. Check it out. There's lots of different ways to sort of approach it and integrate it into someone's life. So if you were listening to this podcast and wanted to give it a try, how would you recommend starting? One way that it seems like is easy for people is to, instead of like this idea of like, I need to meditate in silence, is to actually use some of the apps that are out there and just listen to a guided meditation that's like a couple minutes long. And particularly like I encourage students to do it like in bed or like when they're already in a relaxed state. And, and there's so many. I mean, now there's just like, you know, any topic. It could be about stress. It could be about relationships. It could be about focus. It could be about resilience. Like it's so easy to find those now, which is great. Like I think back to like when I was a kid, I know we even talked about this. So I think those are great introductions because it's actually allowing someone else to do the meditation and the visualization for you. And then your job is just to, to listen and practice but if someone's like, I don't want to meditate, then I say, great, I'm not going to try and convince you to. I think like another practice I talk about a lot, which is also hard, is called thoughts are not facts. 
which is that a lot of students and a lot of people can, especially in stress and anxiety, start to sort of what I would call spiral, like their monkey mind starts to sort of like feed on itself in this way where we can start to sort of like, I mean, an example I often use is like someone who, you know, might be taking like an OCHEM test and let's just say they did really poorly. And then it's like, that might be, okay, that happened. But then it's like, well, oh my gosh, like I shouldn't even be in chem. Like, I can't believe it. Like, I don't even know how I got into Michigan. Like I wanted to be pre-med and now like I can't do that. And now I'm not gonna be a doctor. And now my parents are gonna be so upset. And like, I don't even know what I'm gonna do with my life, right? Like that whole spiral, it can feel real. But if you think about which ones are thoughts and which ones are facts, the only fact was that they didn't do well on the test. Okay. All that other stuff was just our brain sort of taking us on this like roller coaster. And so how do we take a deep breath and go, okay, I'm feeling all that. That's fine. But like, wait a minute. The only fact was the first thing. What do I need to do about that? Instead of getting caught in this whole other like wild spiral that takes us somewhere else and, and often not somewhere productive. I love that thoughts and facts because it's it's so true. And I find that for me, mindfulness is really about sort of controlling those thought processes. And, and I, I view it often in terms of trying to, to mitigate more negative thinking. But I, mm-hmm. I love that. I'm definitely going to use that in the future. That oh, I good. think that's brilliant. I next asked Joy about how mindfulness skills tie into a student's ability to ask for help. I think people's typical barriers asking for help are either wanting to do things themselves, feeling like it's a weakness to ask for help, or sort of the flip side of it is like not wanting to burden someone, feeling like, you know, lots of people have problems, like why mine can't possibly be that bad. Like I should just be able to, you know, figure it out, et cetera. And so I think what mindfulness allows us to do is to A, notice the barriers, like just to sort of like be honest with ourselves about what, why am I not doing this. But then also to sort of get past sort of like the why, like why, why wouldn't I ask for help? Whatever that means, like whether that means like reaching out for mental health help, whether that means talking to a friend, whether that means even just like naming something with someone, how can we use those sort of like skills of just noticing? And then you could even sort of play out worst case scenario. Okay. What would be the worst case scenario of me asking for help? And then sort of like realizing that a lot of that is often like very wild. And so I think, I think sometimes just looking at it and noticing like why we're not doing it can sometimes be helpful in sort of realizing, okay, those really are almost like in some ways, like socially constructed reasons for like why I'm not asking for help. And I'm just sort of like stuck in this place where I've learned that not asking for help is like a strength, which PS, it isn't. And so how do I start to notice, huh, like I have been trained that way. What are my own barriers? Or or if my barriers are more about like, I don't want to burden someone again, like sort of flipping it on, like flipping it the other way and saying, have you ever felt like when someone's asked you for help, especially if they really need it and they think of you as like an entrusted person, like, have you ever been like, oh my gosh, there's such a burden. Like, it's very rare. Usually people are like, no, I'm so glad they reached out. Like, that's what I'm here for. Right. So sometimes it's like, actually sort of using mindfulness to to notice all of those things instead of just like sort of sweeping it away. How would you suggest students can change their thought process to make help seeking more approachable? Because I find that I've yet to encounter a person, student, parent, person, you know, literally anyone who couldn't use an extra little bit of help in some capacity. It's sort of noticing what what are the maybe what are the costs of, of not asking for 
help. And that goes back to status quo, right? It's like, well, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. You know, okay. Well, is that what you're looking for? Are you looking for fine? Like, well, I'm struggling in this class, so I could go to office hours, but like that freaks me out. And there's probably people that are way smarter than me. So I'll just like figure it out myself. Okay. Like that's an option. Or asking for help might like actually push you into the like, I could thrive or I could figure out like what's not connecting. Right. Or I could find out, man, this is really hard for me. And I do, I do need like a tutor or whatever. And then when it comes to mental health, same thing, it might be like, you know, I'm not going to ask for help because I don't trust it or I don't know who or what if they don't understand me or whatever. But then again, like, all right, okay, so what? what's the other side of that? Like, what are you settling for? Are you settling for just okay enough? Like, what's the, what's the cost of status quo too? And like I said, you know, it just takes practice. This also takes practice. And it could be the smallest thing first. It could be that like, you're not going to jump to going to CAPS first, because for some people, like there's understandable barriers, right? And so what happens sometimes in wellness coaching, which isn't therapy, is that someone will say they came to wellness coaching because like they were a little worried about going to CAPS for like reasons that might make sense and other reasons that like are just about stigma. And then if they have a good experience there, and then a wellness coach recommends, hey, you know, I think you might really benefit from going to see a counselor or a therapist too. They're more likely to do that because they already sort of tried like what I would just maybe say like is like a lower level thing to them. And so it does, it just takes practice. And so I would say like, how can a student try like the smallest thing, whether that's asking a friend or talking to a mentor or naming something that's like a little bit uncomfortable, but just trying it as an experiment and see what happens. And I promise it's probably going to go a lot better than the person thinks. Sometimes students will say they're worried that like if they have a problem that they think no one could understand, they'll say, well, I'm not going to seek help. And what I would say is that, you know, sometimes students will talk about, okay, well, I would easily ask for help if like my bike was broken because there's experts in bike fixing, right? That's not what it's called, right? But like, that's also true with mental health. You know, there are people who do this every day. They are experts. They are, especially if you work with someone who works with like the population you're in, or whether you have particular identities that you want to make sure um, someone understands, like people are experts. It's the same thing in some ways as getting your bike fixed. I mean, I realize there's more like subjectivity to it, but I think that's important to remember is that this is what people do. They're good at it. I promise they can help. And finally, the question I like to ask all of my interview guests what would you tell your freshman year college self? I think I would tell my freshman year college self to just trust myself. I was wired similarly to University of Michigan students in high school. I was very driven and perfectionistic and had like my identity wrapped up in school and sports, I guess. But when I went to college, I, I kind of let that go, maybe even to a fault. I sort of feel like that was the best thing that ever happened to me personally. You know what's right for you. And yes, you want to take like what other people have to say into account. And like your gut is usually pretty right up.
Thanks for listening to Episode 5 of How to Student. If you liked what you heard, please be sure to share and subscribe. Please follow us on Instagram for more college tips, episode announcements, and behind-the-scenes content using the handle at HowToStudentPodcast. You'll also be able to interact directly with the host. This episode was created and produced by Sarah Renberg with sound engineering by Eli Sider. Special thanks to Michelle Jelling, our social media coordinator, and Mika Levesque-Manti, the project advisor. This has been a presentation of Packard Street Productions.